Hello and welcome to a special episode of Georgie's Stripping the Dipping podcast. I'm your co-host, F1 Blag, the formidable F1 Blag, as AMG Dens would call me. Uh, AMG Dens is out today. He's training intensively, both for uh, a 24-hour Le Mans race, sponsored by Bradley Philpott, but also the Mandem 500. More on that later. But without further ado, we've got a fantastic guest because at Stripping the Dipping, we try and strip back the layers, the superficial layers of motorsport and look all over industry. So today we're going to talk to a business owner, a guy that owns a classic car bodywork body work reconstruction uh, firm. So without further ado, from in the, from the suburbs of Northampton, perhaps, Mr. Martin Wilcox, how are you? Hello, I'm very well, thank you. Brilliant. Um, and uh, so I, I kind of butchered that, but you're the owner of Z-Lines, is that right? And you, you restore <laughs> yes, classic cars? Yeah. Yeah, like Fantastic. restore, rebuild, refurbish. Amazing. Which way you're looking? But yeah. Well, um, what what you won't know if you're listening at home is that this afternoon I got a really uh, detailed list of all the different cars that you've restored, um, and it's like you've almost got like a a checklist of things you're trying to tick off. Um, well, they're the ones that I can remember. Not. Yeah, not just the ones that I've restored since been working for myself, but like for the companies that I've worked for along the way. And I've yeah. been very lucky. And you've worked on some very nice cars in the places that I've been. Fantastic. So if you uh, have ever wondered about restoration of cars or indeed wanted to know a bit more about getting into restoration or any form of sort of uh, mechanics, then this is the episode for you. So the, the standard question we tend to ask, uh, Martin, all our listeners is, tell us a bit about yourself. So when, if you were sort of meeting someone for the first time, how would you describe uh, Martin Wilcox? Um, well, I try to be a positive person, but um, I've been, <laughs> well, I say restoring cars since we left school. And so it's been 30 years we've been doing wow. this. I've, I started with an apprenticeship at a company called Shapecraft in Northampton. And I've worked in five different companies before I started working for myself. Amazing. Uh, and, and like, what's your, cause, cause obviously like, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up, you know, who knows? Maybe I'll no, find neither out. Neither did but... I. <laughs> exactly. I like when did you, oh really? So what made you yeah. decide, you know what? I don't want to do that. I'm going to go and restore cars. Um, part of the school curriculum that we had to do, we had to do a work experience. And I knew Shapecraft in Northampton because my brother used to work in the company next door and you always used to see the nice cars as you went through the door and you went to see my brother. And um, so their name was in the list of companies that was in the book of places that we could go for the work experiences. So I wrote to them. They accepted me. I'd done a two-week work experience and it got to the end of the second week. And I said, would there be chance of an apprenticeship? So I said, finish your exams and come back which is what I did. Wow. So, uh, you know, if Shapecraft uh, totally hadn't been on chance. the list, who knows? Yeah, I wouldn't have yeah. done it. I wouldn't have been there. I would have been pushing pens on my being an accountant. <laughs> well, you know, shout out to all of our accountant chums. Uh, hopefully they give us a discount <laughs> rate on the tax return this year. But look... Um, you never so, know, so, but I hope this has know. been a bit more of an interesting life. Uh, well, look, uh, what what first attracted you to cars? Because clearly you noticed Shapecraft because you said your brother was working nearby or yeah. next door. Like, what's your first memory of cars or cars. motor racing? Like I say, you know, when the first thing you can remember, the toys that you played with the toy cars, you know, when you were growing up, you watched Formula One on the television, touring cars. And as you got older, you went to the track to see them. You know, so it, there's always been cars about, always been interested. It was something that my dad was interested in, so he just sort of followed along. Brilliant. And now I'm going to ask you to age yourself by by telling me about who was driving in Formula One when you first set eyes on it. First started, uh, James Hunt was still racing. Ayrton Senna was just starting, so was Nigel Mansell. So, you know, you, you were looking at the end of the 70s, early 80s when I started watching it. Okay, quite a sexy time for Formula One. It uh, was a very good time for Formula One. A little yeah, bit better absolutely. than it is now, unfortunately. But it's getting better again at the minute, which is nice. The last couple of three years have been a bit more exciting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, made the racing a bit better. 
I'm keen to prick your brains about sort of mod- modern Formula One a bit later. But going back to that era, would you say yeah. that you had a favourite driver? Oh, definitely, Ayrton Senna. Definitely. Mm. From when he started, you know, you could tell he was just something special. You know, when he was with Lotus and then on from there. I say especially when he was with McLaren, he was, well, I think he was a lot better than Prost. I know there's going to be Prost fans out there that are jumping up and down. But um, <laughs> I just think he was probably the best driver that's ever been. We just robbed of him a little bit too early. Yeah, that is a shame, isn't it? 90, we've just yeah. passed uh, the anniversary of his his passing yeah. and that of Roland Ratzenberger. It is a, you know, obviously it's a sad, from a human perspective, extremely sad, but also from a sporting perspective to see what might have happened with him and Schumacher. Uh, yeah, yeah, it would have entered in. It'd be nice if Roland Ratzenberger did better because well, he was really good in the touring car, wasn't he? When he used to race the M3s, didn't he, in the touring car? Yeah. And, so have you... you know, he was very good at oh. that. On 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 those on those cars, like just a bit of a, because I am definitely a Formula One guy first. Like road cars, yeah, yeah fine, you know, I, I get it, but a sports cars, fine. But I'm not an expert in that. Dens, my co-host, <laughs> is, but like I'm a Formula One guy through and through. Like that's that's me. Yeah. What about you? Because you restore sort of classic cars. So, so yeah, are you more of a are... sports car guy? No, they're mainly road cars. What we're trying road to cars. do. Um. Place I've worked before, we have done race cars. I try mm. and steer away from race cars myself because, with you get onto like, like the classic and historic racing that they do now, the races are every two or three weeks. They crash it this week, they want it back in three weeks. You know, it just <laughs> messes up any sort of restoration timelines that you've got. So, I oh. try and steer away from race cars <laughs> simply for that reason. They're very nice to look at, and you get some lovely cars to do, but. It does run a very hectic schedule. Like I say, restoring the road cars is a lot more sedate, shall we say. A lot easier to pencil in. And and so tell us a bit more about Z-Lines, because you've got Z-Lines classic car bodywork restoration. What was your inspiration, first behind the name, I guess, and then behind deciding to start up on your own? The name, I really couldn't decide on a name. So, um... When he used to work at Shakecraft, the boss there, Clive Smart, whenever he'd come and look at a car, especially the Zagatos, and we, we used to do a fair few DB4 GT Zagatos there, and you get the short wheel, like the Ferrari short wheel base and the likes. Because the shape of the rear haunch is like the rear quarter into the door, it creates a Z in the light line. And because the boss was, oh, look at the Z lines on that. So um, it was... Sort of a bit of a, a nod to Clive, and I thought it'd make him smile when I called it, which it did. So, and that's how I got the name. Uh, that sounds like it could be a euphemism, you know. Look at the Z lines <laughs> on that, but uh... yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, Clive, but no, I like it. You, but yeah, I know what you mean. So this has just popped into my head, and and it's probably because you're a better human than I am, or I'm a worse human than you. But look, you've got a Ferrari, or you've got like a really sort of prestigious car that you're restoring you can't yeah. tell me that you know you have to you, surely you take it for a bit of a test drive you know i'm not sure i've restored this fully i need to go no. and take it around the block no no the only cars i've ever been out in are when the owners brought them back because usually when they leave us they're not a running car if it's a customer's car so cars we do oh. ourselves we take them all the way through to a finish but if it's a customer's car i don't do the mechanicals as a business side at the moment so it will go elsewhere to be mechanically rebuilt. Fascinating. And and so yeah, you're, doing, you're doing the bodywork? Yeah, we do the bodywork, the chassis work, the woodwork, the trim. So, the trim? You know, you cover, yeah, the, the interior trimming, the leather work, yeah. the carpets, the headlinings, and all that sort of stuff. Fantastic. And, and where do you get the materials for the trim? Because I suppose some of these classic cars are like really old school, you know, that leather, classic leather and things like that. Is it just normally available do you have to go and find other cars that you know had that or where do you get it from no there's a um we use a a, a leather wholesalers in rushton and they are very very good like saying it is right on our doorstep but there are several leather wholesalers around the country but these just happen to be a very good one and they're only 20 minutes away nice. which is nice and handy yeah so um i'm not going to say who uh dented my 
car. I had a BMW a while back, which Dens will hate <laughs> me for because he's more of a Mercedes. Uh, I was looking for a house. I may have been behind the wheel, and I just sort of dented the side, the the door panel, trying to take yeah. a, you know, trying to reverse out. And then, you know, we could have sent it to the BMW dealer. In fact, the terms of the lease might have suggested that I do that. Um, but we didn't. We sent it to someone down in the country somewhere, and it came back. It looked good as new. So with a dent or a kind of a huge dip, what what techniques are you using to kind of bring that flush to where it should be? Um, usually you have to you have to shrink the metal back somehow if it's a if it's a really deep gouge. So I'd say on the newer cars, tend not to do newer cars because the metals are harder, metals are thinner. Most of what we do, is, you know, the whereas your BMW, the material is probably 0.8 of a mil thick. Most of the jobs that we do, the skin panels on them, if they're steel, are one mil thick, which doesn't sound a lot of difference. But that extra 0.2 of a mil makes an awful lot of difference when it comes to rework. So you can hotspot them. And there's two ways you can do that. You can either do it with an oxyacetylene torch and you make a nice little cherry round, sort of better size of a 5p and work it back with a, a mallet and weight. Or you can use a spot welder like a single-sided spot welder, which is what I'd use for that sort of thing. Copper weight, a copper block on the back, single-sided spot weld on the front, and it'll shrink your panel back. Wow. So you heat it up, basically? Yes. I say, you do okay. get people like Dent Doctor and all that, and they'll come out with the little prongs and pokes, and they can get like the little creases and the little bits out. But if you put a deep gouge in, then you'll stretch the metal, and you've got to shrink the metal back to get it back to its original shape. No, that makes sense. And and the thing the thing I noticed when I got my car back was um, yeah. if I knew what I was looking for, or I looked at it at a particular angle, I could be like, yeah, I can I can just about see uh, where that was. So like when you're when you're restoring something, it might have like yeah. you know an imperfection in it. How do you what are you doing with your eyes? Where how, what angle are you looking at the car to make sure that it's flush and it's back to how it should be? Um, when we're like say if you're uh, shaping or repairing a panel because like I say most of the panels that we made they're made from hand you know the sheets mm. of aluminium or steel will come in you're using an English wheel and um, I've got Eckhold shrinkers and stretchers so you can only do two things to metal really. you can either sh shrink it or stretch it and that's how you put the shape in and as you put the shape in the the panel forms a line like when you're looking down the side of your car you can see the reflections can't you as to mm. Of what's behind it if you put when we use fluorescent tubes she was vertical fluorescent tubes that you put at the back of the vehicle or the front of the vehicle depending on which end you're looking at it so if you're at the front you put the lights at the back and you can it'll give you a straight line to work to yeah so if you've got a nice even line on the curve then you can see you've got a nice shape but if you've got any divots in it you'll have a little kick a little flick in the line it'll show you where you've got to either put more shape in or less shape in to give you a straight line or your even shape. I mean, my question to you, because I'm, I'm naturally probably not great with my hands. I can play the piano, but I can't <laughs> like, you know, I could, I could do it at the allotment. I could probably, you know, do a raised bed by hammering or screwing a bit of wood together. But like yeah. the finesse that you must have when you're looking at the light reflecting back, looking at that straight line, like you surely you didn't just come out of school and be like, yeah, okay, that's easy. No, like, is it taking years to perfect? The apprenticeship's usually four or five years. And then you spend about another five, six years on top of that getting experience. So, you know, it's a good sort of 10, 12 years before you can think, yeah, you know, you're pretty much confident on what you're doing. It's okay. Just, Every job's that little bit different, yeah. And none of the cars you get to work on are cheap. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of responsibility. Well, yeah, it's a lot of responsibility in what you're doing because, you know, some of the cars are old. There's, you know, and there's a lot of history with some of them, especially the racing cars, mm -hmm. you know, and you're, it's then put in your hands to repair it and put it back to right. You know, so there's an awful lot of responsibility on some cars. No, I can imagine. And and so talking about those cars that have come in, like yeah. what's perhaps your favourite car to have ever worked on? And then maybe it's the same answer, maybe it isn't. But what's the proudest you have been of a job that you've worked on a car? Well, favourite car, I'll go for Lister Nobly, just because I like the Lister Nobly. It's a 
fantastic shape car. And always fancy doing a hard top. They never done it. It was an open top. So it's like a D type special. Frank Costin redesigned it slightly and um, basically made it a lower, sleeker shape. But the proudest we've ever been was probably a DB4 GT Zagato replica that we'd done for a Belgian fellow named Noel de Bloc. That was one of us at Shapecraft. Me and a bloke called Steve Matthewman done that. And that job is probably the best job that you've done. Well, you know, and you've done some fantastic cars through the years, but that is probably the best looking car that we've done. Everything just seemed to just look just right on it. Yeah, you couldn't pick fault. And I'm looking at the list of Nobly to begin with. And I, I just encourage you, if you're listening at home, just Google that. That's a beautiful, a beautiful car. Yeah, and you're right about it being though. low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stunning. I say, I always fancy doing a hard top version. They've never done one with a roof. So, because yeah, well, it's got such a raised back on it, it makes it, you know, it'd be a perfect car for a coupe. Yeah, it looks stunning. Mm. Um, and, and like, because this, this raises a question, because you said, I think, is it a guy from like the continent you're working on that second car yeah. for? Like, from, yeah. Like, how, how do you get your name out there? Is it, are you really good at social media or is it like, no, yeah. word of mouth, this guy heard of you and was like, I had to come and see you? bit of both when since i've been working for myself most of the advertising has been done through social media i haven't placed an advert anywhere but it's like the db6 i've got at the minute in the workshop come from australia well it's owned by an english person but it was the australian person that sold it that got me to do the job and then he sold it to an english person once it was here i'm saying that was from instagram wow okay yeah. So what's your, what's your, shout out your Insta. I'm intrigued now. What's your Instagram? It's Zlines. Z underscore lines. Yeah. Wow. Well, on that and on Facebook, I say there's a couple of thousand followers on Facebook and just over a thousand followers on Instagram. I haven't put a post on for a couple of months, but I say the last post on Facebook got 30,000 views, you know, and it's amazing the, the response you can get from 10 pictures that you put on. Wow. Yeah. So I can see you've got your last post at time of recording. It looks like you've got like a shot of the workshop and yeah, just the it's chassis, the, of the bare chassis of the car. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. The DB6 underbody. And that, that's the wow. one from Australia. That come in as a front end. So it's a front cross member and two front chassis legs. All the rest of it was it, up to the bulkhead was there, but it was rotten. And the rest of it, <coughs> excuse me, the rest of it's been built from it. And then how long would it take you? Because I'm looking, I really encourage you if you're listening at home, just go on Facebook. For those of you that still have Facebook, I know the kids out there sort of yeah. get, get ashamed of it. But like, I'm showing my this, age. This car just looks like, in some of the pictures, just some like metal work, very little um, skin on it. And, and like how, from, from that point to finishing it, how, how long is that? That's got to be a year or something, surely. How long are you working on that? For me to build, and what you're seeing there is the super, uh, the super Legera structure. For me to make that and put the aluminium bodywork on it, you're around 2,000 hours. So you're looking at a year's work. And then by the time it goes through the trim shop, the paint shop, the mechanicals, the electricals, to do a full restoration, it's probably going to be three years if everything doesn't have any holdups. Yeah. And it is well, not a quick process. No, well, to do it right, no. Everything's got to be done in the right order. And I say, if you start washing things and cutting corners, you don't get the job at the end of it. No. Well, here's here's my question to you. I don't know if you've watched your Only Fools and Horses, where um, <laughs> yeah. I might have said this before, Trigger's like Trigger broom. gets an award. Yeah, Trigger's Broom, yeah, exactly. So those of, those of yeah. you that are listening that are probably below the age of 35 or, you know, not from the UK... There's they're a sitcom. Yeah, they're like, what the hell are you talking about? There's a guy that is like classic for being a little bit slow-witted and he was getting an award from the council for using the same broom for 30 years as a street cleaner. Uh, and he was like, the punchline is it's had six different heads and seven different handles. So <laughs> extending that to um, this, um, you know, re restoring a car, is there a premium on using original parts or... 
Are you just trying to create the aesthetic of what and, yes. and the sort of shape? Yeah, yeah. You always try and use. You always try and use as much of the original car as possible. And like I say, with mm. this particular DB suit, there's a front cross member and two front chassis legs left, and that was it. The rest of it just rotted into nothing. But you always try and use as much as you can. But there are a lot of cars out there that are completely new, you know, or they might be a few years old now. But you know, when they they first see the light of day with a fresh paint job, everything about them's new, and they're still sold as original cars. Because broom, so Again, it, it does happen. Yeah. yeah, it does happen. Like I say, you'll get a, an old chassis number stamped on a new chassis, and away mm. you go. But the the you know, people don't want that anymore. They want the traceability. It's what it's what separates like an original car from a recreation, because there's so many like um, continuation cars, shall we call them, that are made by the manufacturers, but they're not an original car. They are a 2020 car, they're a 2018 car, whatever, but it's a continuation car, not an original car, and a lot of people still want the originals. I'm sure they do. Yeah. Uh, is there paperwork that comes along in terms of that traceability or that authenticity? Is there any sort of paperwork that cars tend to have with them or not, or not really? Yeah. And you'll get service histories. You'll get obviously your MOTs and the likes thereof. You can trace it depending on what country it's been in through registration documents and when it's changed hands from different owner to different owner. And then you always come back to the, the stamps that are on the car. So you've got the chassis number and the, the engine number and all that sort of stuff that's still stamped sort of throughout the vehicles. And like the Aston Martin, they have the chassis number that's stamped on the front, on the front cross member, and then they have a build number. And that build number will be stamped on the body, it'll be stamped on the doors, the bonnet, the boot, everything that comes off of it, or the trim will be stamped with that number. And it, it makes a difference if you've got then a car with matching numbers all the way through. Hmm. And it is that the same sense. with most marks. If you see a car that's advertised with matching numbers, that's the one that's got like the engine gearbox has got the same number as what it had originally. So you have the chassis number, the like the body number, and the mechanical numbers will match. That makes sense. So is you know, so the, it is an easy way to trace through it. It's always more difficult if it's changed countries, which a lot of them do. But like I say, the, it's, it just takes a little bit more time to find the history. But it is well documented. You can easily trace. Even if it's been in a barn for 20 years, somebody knows where <laughs> it's been. You know, and yeah. it's amazing the things that do appear and somebody will know where it's been. There's still a, a paper trail of how it got there and how it's left. No, I guess so. And... Um... Here's my question to you, because uh, we're, we're basically talking about cars that were designed, what, pre, pre-1980, pre-1970? I'm trying to, like, what's the, what's the cutoff what, if we the... talk classic? We say the word classic. Classics, usually at the minute, I sort of make to the 80s. But most yeah. of the stuff that we get involved with, it will finish in the 60s. Because the panels that we make, they're handmade. You know, so you'll have mm. a jig or a buck, whether it be fiberglass or wood or any particular resin and like I said that they are shaped by hand to fit on that book and then they're put together you get cars that are into the 70s onwards they're pressed you know they were pressed of panels that are then spot welded whichever together mm. anything that's designed to be pressed is always more difficult to make than something that's been designed to be made by hand yeah so you can do it, but the costs rise. And being as the costs are usually in the older vehicles, that's why that that's usually what we end up restoring. No, that makes so sense. It, if it takes, as a rough rule of thumb, if you've got an open top car, you're looking at about a thousand, twelve hundred hours. If you've got a fixed head car, you're looking at two thousand hours. So to do that fixed head car, you're looking at hundred twenty, hundred thirty thousand pounds upwards. So you've got to have a. a big value in the car to make it worthwhile doing 
because once it leaves me with the 120,000 plus bill, it will then go to the paint shop where it'll have another 20,000, it will go to the trim shop where it'll have another 20,000, then it will go to the mechanic shop where it can have another you know, 60, 70,000 spent on it. So by the time you get to the end of it, you're quarter of a million quid into a car. You know, you, you've got to have an awful lot of value in the car to make it worthwhile at the end of it or great passion for it. You've made me and feel extremely people... poor. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. I can't afford none of the cars I work on, so I won't worry about it. But, um, <laughs> but now you do get cars that people make just for the passion. And we done one for a bloke called Tom Solly a few years ago. It was a Rover 20. You know, and the car's worth, you know, 15 grand, 20 grand maybe. But he must have spent 150, 160,000 pounds on this. And he was an old, old gentleman when he had one, when he was convalescing here in the war, American fella, he got shot in the war, come back here to convalesce, and had a Rover 20 drop in, and he wanted another one before he died. He was lucky, he had a few, you know, he wasn't a poor fella. So he spent an awful lot of money getting this one done, exactly how he wanted it. So you do get to, you know, work on obscure things, but usually, like I say, you're down to the Aston Martins, the Ferraris, the Maseratis, the likes thereof that do have a large price tag that go with them because a lot wow. of people want to see some sort of return for the money. So they, and then people tend to trade those cars once they've been, or sell them on, or do, what? what is the kind of attraction or is it just they want to collect them? A lot of people are collectors when, like you say, you do get to do some cars for people that intend to use them. But the racing cars, they do get raced at the events like Goodwood, Silverstone Classic and the likes thereof. But a lot of the road cars, they'll be done and they come out too. So on the road cars, like I'm just thinking of other cars I've owned in my life. I'm not going to say them on, on, on the line because some of them are frankly embarrassing. Uh, some of them are French, French make of the mid-90s. So here's, here's my question. Like what went wrong in my view or what, what happened to car design that you know, when you look back, I don't know, it just looks, you know, anything pre-1970 to me looks stunning. And then most things between about 1970 and, I don't know, 2015 look blocky and, I don't know, a bit hideous. Was it this? it was cheaper to make mass produce a kind of blockier design or what, what happened with car design? And a lot of it's down to fashion. Mm. Isn't it? And you get styles of what people like in the era, but a lot of it's down to... Um, like wind tunnels and like the, the design to keep it sleek, to keep it smooth, to get your efficiencies up. Then you come down to production methods. A lot of panels now are bonded on rather than welded on. So your panels are joined together different, which means that the shape of your car is going to be different. It's like everything used to have a drain gutter, didn't it, around the roof, where the, the roof was spot welded to the side structures. That will finish with a Ford Sierra that anybody will remember that one. Because the, the the technology behind joining the panels together changed. So as the technology changes, the way that you make the car changes, so the shape of it can then go to a different way. When look at bumpers now, and a, a bumper will make up pretty much the whole of the front or the whole of the rear of a car. It's injection molded out of ABS. They can just bolt on. Whereas forty years ago couldn't do that. You get a picture of a Ford yeah. Sierra. <laughs> yeah. Not a car. I love it. I don't care. They were nice. Yeah. Well, no. What was that one? Was it? There was like a massive one, like a Ford Sierra Scorpio or something. In it. They done the I RS Cosworth. That that was the RS. one that yeah. was the the very popular one. Um, like I say, that again, you know, they were sort of four or five years old, and the insurance was more than what it was to buy one because they were very stealable. Gosh. They it's like very eighties. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, very very eighties. I say who yeah. was eighty three? Was it eighty four? They come out, but yeah, but it doesn't really matter what what point in history you pick on car design. Cars always look very similar, simply because that's what the fashion dictates. Hmm. But the way that cars look today has gone through like production processes. It's like you look at a Tesla now, and they are very jelly mold because they don't need the air intake at the front. They basically uh, superformed the chassis, like an injection molded aluminium chassis in it that they use. So it's all sort of made in three bits, bolted together, panels glued on, and away you go. It's very, very kit form and how cars are made now. 
if someone drove in with a Tesla, right? You'd yeah. be like, no, I can't deal with that here. Or could you no, could. have a crack at it? <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I'd just send them down the road. I say anything that gets much into the seventies. I say I don't really do that much past it, simply because right. it's not going to be worth it for you know for the owner. You got to think of what the car's worth and what they get at the end of it. There, there are always the exceptions to the rule, but like you get the average classic, and it's just it's why they've become rare because they're not worth restoring. And you get up until sort of into the nineties when they started galvanizing, yeah, uh, galvanized dipping the body shells. There's an awful lot that falls to bits before that. And it's like you were saying about your French car that was made in the nineties. I dare say it's still here. <laughs> but if you'd have bought that Ford Sierra, it wouldn't be because I, they weren't galvanized. I think my Mark II Clio is, uh, or Mark One maybe. I don't know. Is it probably a small cube of metal that's been squashed somewhere <laughs> in the West Midlands? Uh, Very probably on the... a washing machine by now, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been recycled, sadly, but you know, yeah, uh, we you know, maybe one day I'll try and get one of those Williams Renault Clio's that they had. They, those were a bit they of a dream. Very nice, weren't they? Yeah, they were now, now we're nice. reminiscing about UK <laughs> yeah. uh, spec hot hatches, which will alienate yeah. most of our listeners. <laughs> it was um, a good era, it was a very good it, era for cars. I think it was a good era, yeah. Go, because... GT Turbo. There we go. Exactly. Mm. With a little spoiler on the back. Um, yep. Going going to classic cars, right? Because you talked yep. about fashions. What yep. like what's your what's your favorite classic car? Probably one that you like you've talked about that your favorite that you've worked on. Maybe one that you haven't worked on. Uh, one that I'd then, like to work on that I haven't. Yeah, that you Lamborghini yeah, exactly. Ooh, Definitely a Miura. Lamborghini Miura. Yeah. Yeah. I said that you, a, a do you have a chance? Of working on that, uh, the, um, there's always the chance, but um, like you say, it's I've like I said, I've been doing it 30 years, so I'm now 50. You got what 15 16 years left of doing this, maybe, and I ain't even come near one yet. But um, you never know, you never know. But they are an awesome looking car, first yeah. rear engine sports car, and all because wow. the bloke that owned a tractor company wanted one engine in the back of a car, and Enzo Ferrari wouldn't do it. So he made his own. That is and a legendary Lamborg- story. Yeah, that's how Lamborghini started making cars. Just because Enzo Ferrari wouldn't put an engine in the back. Yeah, and eventually I guess he ate his words since, you know, that's where we are today. Oh, yeah. Or mid-engine at least. Yeah. Yeah. But um, no, the Lamborghini Mio, that's definitely the one that I'd like to work on. One that I wouldn't mind owning either. But no chance of that. So Lamborghini Miura, according to my yeah. good friend, Mr. Wikipedia... Um, only 764 were built, right? So yeah, maybe if you move to Italy, I don't know, you, know, <laughs> you could <laughs> relocate you to somewhere. In... <laughs> exactly. You never uh, know. Gosh. But no, they are a nice car. And they do, like I said, they're made of steel, so they do rot. So there's always a good chance. Uh, and what about other... Person at some point. So, so you've got our listeners frantically going, like Googling beautiful cars. What, is there another one that sort of comes to mind that you'd love to work on? That, that I haven't, or that I would... Yeah, well, it can be that you have, but yeah, whichever, yeah. Um, cars that you have worked on that I did like. I did like the Spiker, like the C8 Laviolette. That was a lovely-looking car. That was that was a nice one to work on. Um, I'd say for a new car, or oh, a new car at the time, that was 2000 and, <laughs> 2002, wasn't it? Somewhere around there, Ooh. and I said that was a that was a lovely looking car. Um, that does look pretty. Yeah, I said the interior in them was gorgeous. But um, other cars I like to work on um, an E type. Like to do a low drag E type at some point, and that is one that might be on the cards. So that's something that'd be nice to do in the next couple of three years, and it's something that's looking quite promising at the minute. Ooh. Well, fingers crossed for you. And I say a lot depends on time. I know I stand a good chance of doing it because I bought the E-Type four months ago to do it with. So it's just <laughs> a bit of time to do it. So that would be a personal project, would it? Yeah, that would be a personal project. So yeah. it, when I, as and when you get a bit of time to do it, that's always the difficult bit. When you're trying a lot of bit of time and then another job comes up and another job comes up. and Customers have to come first at the minute. 
How many uh, how many cars do you think you work on concurrently? Yeah, yeah. Well, currently in the workshop and in progress. Or or just at the same time. What's the maximum? You know, because we've probably got some many billionaires here listening that are thinking this is the guy that's going to restore my car. So, how many do you think you can fit or or work on at the same time? I only usually work on two, maybe three at a time. Hmm. When, like I say, it, it keeps the number small. It keeps things reasonably simple to organise. And if anything comes to a stop, you can always move on. You know, people can be swapped about, moved about. But if you get too much, you know, it just gets too complicated. It's easier to have, like, get a car done quicker and out and get the next one in than what it is. Have lots of projects in that just drag on forever. Customers prefer it as well. It keeps everything moving. Like I say, you try and do things in sort of a three-year span. If you get any hold-ups, that can, you know, that can soon escalate. So if you can get a job done quicker or, or out of my shop quicker into the next part, then all the better it is for the owner. Gosh, that that is an attitude that I wish the kind of uh, people that I try and contract in my area had. But I'm trying to get my garden done and they've said it was like last summer and we're at this summer now at this point. So, yeah, I think you're right. Like not yeah. having too much of a backlog is probably the best way to manage customers, although you don't want yeah, to dry well, up. So I've still got a couple. Yeah, you know, I've got a couple of years of work sitting on the books waiting to come through. You know, so there's plenty to come into. But like I say, you don't want to keep things, you know, you want to get things through the pipeline as quick as you can. No, yeah, of course. You know, it's better for everybody. So you, you talked a bit about sort of trying to steer clear of racing cars uh, these days, uh, given yeah. their drivers tend to prang them a bit. I'm actually going yeah. to the Goodwood Festival of Speed um, this year. Have you, I take it you've been? It's been, been nice. I've in never general. been. Oh. I've never been. I've been to the... Um, the classic. No, I've been to the Festival of Speed twice, but I've never been to the Revival. I've yeah, that's it, I've been to a couple of times, yeah. but I've never been to Revival. Usually go to Silverstone Classic, because you know, it's just down the road. It's a nice, easy day out, and it's pretty much the same event. But um, like I say, the atmosphere at Goodwood is going to be good. And we're doing okay. intend to go with another E-type that we're doing. Sort of won't be next year, but probably the year after. I think it's a good point to market it and sell it, and with a bit of luck, get a bit of interest in the lightweight that we're doing as well, in the low drag. Yeah, I can imagine that will get you a, a lot of a lot of interest. I mean, you could Hopefully. trick someone into buying it that you know crashes a lot, and then you know you've got <laughs> you hire a few more a people. You've got some business. Yeah, you've got a continual work stream, then, haven't you? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, like, here's a question. Actually, it relates to racing, and you sort of implied earlier that you do watch a bit of Formula One these days as well. Yeah. My, my my view is that, right, because of the huge strides in safety and technology, driving standards have kind of dropped because, you know, if you have a prang in a Formula One car, unless it goes extremely wrong, you're going to just get out and walk off. And, yeah, they do you know, expect you to walk away these days. Yeah. yeah. I say, if you'd have gone back you know, even 15, 20 years, some of the mm. things that they have today, you wouldn't get away from. No, you know, and the carbon fiber technology has come on phenomenally to make the car stronger. Exactly. But again, then again, so like the, but the, um, like the halo that comes around the head. I say, giving the driver a bit of protection from anything sort of coming in as an impact, whether it be a wheel or another car mm. or whichever. I said the the safety. You can see why you got to put the safety in, and nobody wants to see anybody get hurt. But yeah, it does make people complacent. Hmm. So it's the same with the runoffs. You know, when you got an awful lot of runoff on corners now, what's wrong with the gravel trap? If you make a mistake, you're in the gravel trap, you don't get out. Whereas as it is, you go around the runoff area and you're back in the race again. And sometimes it's faster, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like I said, there's, there's, there's good things, obviously, you know, when you know, nobody likes to see anybody getting hurt. But I don't think it's done an awful lot for the racing. It's the same as... But the the electrical systems in the car it makes them that heavy, and they're huge now, aren't they? Compared to what they were twenty five, thirty years ago. Yeah. And Alonso summed it up the best a couple of three years ago. He was in one of the press conferences, and he says he thinks he's the only person when there were sort of six or seven drivers there, and he said that he was the only driver there that would probably still remember when the lights go out racing until the flag waves at the end of it. He says now you're saving your tires, you're saving your fuel. You're saving your mm. battery. Everything's about 
economizing, not about racing. You know, making everything last to the end. You know, you got to do however many races it is now on an end. They get two powertrains, don't they, now to last 23 races? That's crazy. Races. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Whereas, 20, you know, you go months. back into the 80s and they could have four or five engines in a weekend. <laughs> yeah, the Brabham qualifying yeah. engine, which was like a BMW or, or was it Alfa Romeo? I can't yeah. remember, but it was sort of BMW. high, high yeah, turbo. It was a stupidly overpowered. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Formula One has changed an awful lot. You know, and the size of the teams now. When, you know, you, you go back into the end of the 70s, into the 80s, like McLaren probably had two-ish, 2,000 people working for them, tops. You know, and, and now you look at it, the, you know, the aerodynamic department is probably that size. So it, it's changed from a sport to a business, isn't it, as well? Which has done it some favours, not others. For sure, and and who would you say your favourite driver is in this in this current modern era? Current era, yeah, like still driving or has been driving up until the last couple of years. Up to the last couple of years, I go for Vettel. Either he mm. was very good driver. I say he he got better as he got older. Same as Alonso now. He, he gets better as he gets older. He he takes. He doesn't seem to throw his toys out the fan quite as often as he used to and blame everybody else when something goes wrong. And let's say you got a you know, if you make a mistake, you got old your hands up, you know, that was me. I didn't you know, you didn't get the most out of the car that day, you didn't make get the most out of the car that weekend, whichever. So but no there are some good up and coming drivers. And hopefully I say they'll carry the sport on into the future. It's nice to see Russell doing well. And he seems to be getting on remarkably well at Mercedes. So, yeah, is Lando Norris hopefully going to be another great driver of the future? So, um, you know, there's still a lot of up-and-coming talent in the sport. Yeah, and there was a moment um, in the late... Well, when was it? Damon Hill would have retired in 1999. And then I think Jensen yeah. Button appeared. And so there was quite a period when there was like one British... Oh, well, Coulthard was there. But yeah, there was like a couple of seasons when yeah. there was like one British driver. And now we seem to have quite yeah. a good range, actually. Yeah, like you say, but there's a nice range of nationalities all the way across there now, isn't there? And like you yeah, say, it yeah. used to be a few British, a few French, a couple of Germans, and that was about it. Anybody else that come along didn't really do very well. But now yeah. there seems to be a lot more opportunity coming simply because yeah. it is more of a, a multinational sport now. When it used to be very European, you know, even though you race around the world, everything was a very European focus on it. Whereas now it does seem to be taking a lot, you know, the rest of the world into consideration a lot more. Absolutely. Um, and it, but it makes as... it a world championship. You know, it's meant to be yeah. a world championship. When you look at... You go to America and you look at World Series baseball, there's only those in Japan that play it. And it's not really much of a World Series then, is it? So, you know, you, to be a world champion, you've got to include the world, whether it be, you know, racing drivers, the lot. You know, the circuits where you go, the countries that you go to. Make it as inclusive as possible. For sure. I, I, I wonder, though, there's probably a maths here because... Clearly, we want it to be inclusive, but I can't see how they're going to do more than the... They had 23 races on the calendar this season and then China yeah. dropped out, so it went to 22. Are they going to have yeah. to do fewer European races or something? Like, How are they going to manage that to get, to get that inclusion? Oh, don't know. This is going to be the difficult bit, isn't it? Do you go back... I don't know if you, when you started watching the racing, but you went back, you used to have 16 races a year, but you only used to use sort of your top 11 or 12 finishes. You didn't, not every point counted. If, if you had three or four bad races, you wouldn't count those towards your championship points. So do you do the same sort of thing where you could have 26, 27 races, but you wouldn't have every driver every race? Yeah, it's a good point. I think if I, like, so the drivers is one thing, but I kind of feel for the mechanics uh, and, yeah. and the kind of the trackside team that are travelling. Yeah. I think what have we got, so this weekend... It, Imola could be rained out. But then I think it's the start of a triple header, um, yeah. which includes Monaco and another circuit. And um, the logistics of sort of turning up on a Wednesday and then a Thursday, getting the car out 
And then by the Sunday night, they're mainly packed up, drive off on the Monday and start again. It just seems... Yeah. And but, you're doing but, that from you know, March through to November. Yeah. It gets a long year. It gets a very long year. Hmm. So, yeah. which is where if you didn't have to race every race, you might pick where you're going, which track suits your car's strong points. Oh, it's going to be a bit disappointing for the fans because they're not going to see them at every race. Hmm. But it might make cars strong. You know, your racing might be better, even if your favourite driver's not there. Yeah. Well, who's so you've mentioned Vettel is probably your favourite modern era driver or from recent years. You talked about Senna yeah. before. Have you got a team that you tend to follow or prefer? Always like McLaren. Mm. So, yeah, you, obviously you grew up with Senna and I know he was Lotus for the start, but you, he was more, always more successful with the McLarens. You always followed him with that. And it's always nice to see him doing well, unfortunately, not so well at the minute. Mm. It'll be nice to see him back on top again at some point. Yeah, so, but I say, yeah, McLaren is definitely a, I say, one of the favourites, definitely. Mm. They've um, they sort of dropped off because they obviously they were, you know, <clears throat> dominant in the eight, late eighties. Yeah, Williams had their period on top. Then McLaren sort of came back before Ferrari. Then had their dominance, but then McLaren sort of always been there or thereabouts and. Yeah, you know, the turbo hybrid era destroyed them. Yeah, they, but then they were coming back, weren't they? Yeah, we've sort of yeah. Norris was doing really well, yeah, and then this they year just seem they just seemed backpedaled yeah. again. Yeah, it's but it shows how good the competition is. Hmm. You know, when you've only got to have a slightly pause on. Look at Mercedes, and how many years were they head and shoulders above everybody, and now they've hmm. had two years in the doldrums for them. I know they've been finishing sort of third, fourth, but but it, it's not a good it's not a good finish for them, is it? You know, and I know no. it shows how good they've been when they can say they've had a bad year and still finish sort of third in the constructors championship. But it, you only have to drop the ball a little bit and it takes you four or five seasons to catch back up again. Yeah. And it to me, I don't know what you think, so just like talking about Red Bull at the moment, it just feels to me like they're gonna they're going to be on top until the regulations change. They feel like they've got something in hand. Probably. And they might not be yeah. pushing. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. probably. But it's, that's what Mercedes were last time. And on that particular set of rules, they dominated. And it wasn't until you changed the rules that somebody else got on top. And yeah. like you say, it's, the cars are so technical. Everything is so fine, like the levels that they perform to. If one mm. of those levels isn't at 100%, if you're down to 98%, it makes such a difference on the overall characteristics of the car. Like I say, it's whether you can get back over it or not because of budget caps and times that you get for testing limited. You know, unless you hit the ground running, it is a big struggle. No, for sure. Um, and we'll see, you know, it remains to be seen. Maybe the uh, cost cap penalty on, you know, that's limiting the aero testing for Red Bull will achieve yep. something and bring maybe make a difference yeah maybe we yeah. don't know and we'll see we'll see who breaks the cost cap uh, or is found to break the cost cap this year you know who somebody knows who will it could be. they always push the rules yeah. as much as they can but that's what you have of to course. do at that sort of level if you operate well with inside the rules you're not going to win it's the same as yeah, everything well, whether it's you know in the development in the office in the design or on the track you've got to be at 203% and if you're not pushing the boundaries you're not you know, pushing the rules as much as you can, then you're not going to win. No, my my favourite, I think, is the Tyrrell from something like 1984, which is when Martin Brundle sort of turned up. They would fill the car with water towards the end of the race yeah, uh, to make sure it met the minimum weight test at the end. Yeah. Um, is it, you know, I guess technically it didn't break the rules, but clearly... There were there were politics at play, and and the spirit of the rules perhaps it, it didn't quite follow. So they were DQ'd. This it's part of what racing is. It's finding what oh. rules you can bend as much as you can without breaking them. And until they change the rules, you're not breaking it. Like I say probably not in the spirit of racing, but everybody does it. You know, if you're not doing it, mm. you're not at the you know you're not going to be at the front. So, but. It's always, you know, it's always nice to see. You put a bit of smile on the face when you look back with those sort of rules. You know, how rules get broken or bent. Say. <laughs> so hard segue. Speaking of bends, do you have any uh, 
Do you have any favourite circuits? You talked about sort of looking at uh, expanding the World Championship to make it truly global. Have you got a particular track? I know you live 10 miles away from, or 10 minutes away, sorry, from Silverstone. Yeah, Silverstone's always going to be a favourite just because it's yeah. right on your doorstep. Yeah. But Hockenheim's always a nice one to sit and watch a race round. Spa's yeah. the, the, nice the modern one? Race round. The yeah. modern race tracks. Yeah. No, no, Sochi, maybe. It's, it's a nice... It's a changeable track in it. It's got a. They've done well with the design on it. It's got some classic parts to it. It's got some newer parts to it. Mm. But there's, you know, and there's a lot of new tracks come on that are, they've got to grow on you. Yeah. Yeah. And the older tracks, they've they've got prestige because of how long they've been used. Yeah. Mm. It, it, it doesn't matter what track you get when guaranteed they're not going to race the exactly the same track for the first two or three years because they're going to think oh I can improve that a little bit I can improve that a little bit so once it's been through sort of five or six seasons then you start getting into a, a truly good track so I can remember when Suzuka come on and everybody moaned at that now that's a well, it was one of the better tracks that they race on so you know it's tracks take a little while to develop I don't think any of them stay 100% the same. They change the corner a little bit. You know, it's just out of changing the curb height a little bit. Or like we were saying before about the gravel traps and the runoffs. They'll put a gravel trap here, a runoff there, and it just makes it that more entertaining. What's uh, what's intriguing to me, and you mentioned it earlier, because I think the cars in maybe like 1994, the cars were as low as sort of 500 kilos, something like that. Yep. And now they're up at the 800. Like yeah. the the characteristics of tracks change when you have a different size of car. So like the larger the to. car, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When we'll take Silverstone example just because it's here, so, you know, it's one well, not I know well. But you look at the shape of what the track is now, especially if you go to a classic car race, and the cars are flat out for ninety percent of the track, which suits the modern cars. You know, they're built for that sort of racing, whereas the older cars. You'll get some that were good at this, you know, uh, for straight out speed, some that were better around the corners. And mm. you always got the more sort of defined tracks. You know, you'd, you'd, you'd have cars that were better in certain areas on certain tracks, which now mm. the tracks all seem to be very similar, if that makes sense. You know, and yeah. they all seem to have a, a couple of three speed straights and a couple of three twisty bits. And there doesn't seem to be that much definition, you know. Yeah. And, Obviously, they're, they're, they're doing it, you know, to keep the racing as close as possible. But then the cars no, are sure. pretty much the same. The, and, and the challenge you've got, I suppose, in modern Formula One is the size of the cars means that you're not going to get three wide racing or difficult no. to follow or, you know, yeah. the weight, the amount of weight you're trying to decelerate means yeah. that the braking zones or, or the, oh, sorry, the modern brakes being so good, it just makes it difficult to kind of see that overtaking that you'd perhaps want to see. Yeah, but it's like the modern racing line's different to what it was you yeah. know, 15, 20 years ago. Like you say, because the acceleration lines are great now and the aerodynamics are great. They break as late as they can into a corner, take as sharp a line as possible and accelerate out the other side. Whereas if you'd have gone back 25 years, you carried the speed through the corner. Because the, the, like the technology and the acceleration of the cars is different, you drive the car different. Which again, with the modern tracks, they design the tracks different. To suit the modern cars, you've you've almost convinced me to get a VPN and and buy uh, from or get the F1 TV app uh, and go back and look at some classic races. Um, <laughs> but we'll would, we'll have to make. Go on, sorry. Yes, I would always say I'd watch a few of the older races. I'd say you, you see them even if you look just through YouTube, you will find the older races. Sit and have a watch because it is a totally different experience to what you'll get watching the modern Formula One. Absolutely. Even well, if it's just, just the Murray Walker's commentary. I was literally going to say, yeah, just when you hear Murray Walker, you hear the old F1 theme, the jingle, yeah, uh, and then it uh, is, off we go. Like you say, it is a totally different experience, especially if you get with James on, on as well. They used to bounce off each other quite well. Yes, with one microphone, I'm told. So there was a bit of yeah. a wrestle over who was speaking, yeah. Yeah, half the time, apparently James just used to take the microphone off of Murray just to wind him up. <laughs> exactly well look um it's been a fascinating conversation really fantastic to hear um basically how you restore classic cars and 
and and you've given us some Google uh, sort of tips. We're going to go and look up some of those cars. I've got the Miura now, probably as my phone background forever. So I do hope that you know a, a wealthy car collector knocks on your door and says, "Oh, I'd really love you to restore this in the not too distant future." So I hope if they do, I'll really let you know. You. <laughs> yeah, please do. Anybody that's interested in car restoration, when there's mm. a lot of stuff on YouTube, you can see on our projects are done. Rachel Lean, Pro Shaper, is a very good person to watch, American person. I say the, the yeah. programs like that, Jay Leno's always a good one. And you know, there's a Absolutely. lot of programs about you can find how things are done. Even if you you know you want to take it to your own project, your own cars, if whether you're making like a, a kit car or restoring a classic. It's all the same principles. Gosh, well, I you know, if, if I had a garage, you know, I'd I'd almost certainly buy that Renault Clio, and then I'd almost <laughs> certainly dent it, which means I'd have to fix it. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's been really fascinating. Um, any any before you leave us, anything? And I'm going to ask you the critical question in a minute. Yep. But any any um, anything you want to point our listeners towards? Anything you want to shout out, or any message you want to leave uh, our listeners? Oh, let's say if car restoration if anybody's listening because they want it it's not a bad time to get into the industry you know there's a lot of opportunities a lot more opportunities now than what there was when i left school and i say i was lucky 100 percent lucky where i got but now there's a lot of courses heritage skills academy you know they do a lot of training whether it be mechanical restoration bodywork paintwork you know there's a lot of places now that are opening up so it is a lot more accessible to anybody that wants to get in fantastic well i do hope i do hope that any budging um you know restorers people that want to work on cars um take heed um and they and they look at those opportunities but before we go right there's a fundamental yep. question we ask all our guests we've asked uh, i always say this person we've asked uh, mario andretti he had a very strong view uh, we've asked uh, who else have we asked? Like lots of uh, we've asked Brian Herter of uh, IndyCar fame, who Ooh. you know I love IndyCar, but we haven't covered it today. Yeah. And and he he was more relaxed. So the question is, pineapple on pizza? Yes or no? Definitely, most definitely. Whenever wow. I have pizza, ninety percent of the time it'll be Hawaiian. I do like it. Wow. Just give it a nice. It adds a bit of sweetness to it. The tomato can often be just that little bit too sharp. You get a bit of pineapple on it, that little bit of sweetness takes it all away, especially with the. You need to get into advertising. Wow. That's (laughs) That's fantastic. A nice smoked ham on it as well goes lovely. Fantastic. Well, look, if you need, if you're going to franchise some sort of pizza business, I'm happy to work for it. That sounds (laughs) sounds lovely. I'm hungry now. I've had my dinner. (laughs) Brilliant. Well, Georgie's going to be happy because Georgie. is the pineapple team and I'm the non-pineapple team. So while while I'm left wow. disappointed, you've made her day. So congrats. Which way did Mario jump? He said no. He was very Italian about it. It was like, no. Oh. Like it was like there was that no, I know, sorry, I didn't want to lead I the witness, so I didn't yes. tell you. <laughs> no, I thought it'd have but, been a yes. You know, yeah. like you say is I've thought being Italian passionate, it'd have been a yes, but never mind. Yeah. He was yeah, well, you know. <laughs> We'll, um, what we might do is create a, a, t- a tally chart of our guests. I, I think pineapple is quite, quite popular. We do have some fence sitters that say, oh, not for me, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't deny anyone their right to pineapple. But I, I like you. You kind of were very direct. Uh, no, you, you yes, gotta, absolutely. Yeah, you got to jump down one side or the other. And you can't sit on the fence over yeah, something as exactly. that. No splinters in the bum. Uh, you, you're off the fence. <laughs> exactly. Definitely. Brilliant. Not. Well, look, uh, Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Really, no, thank really you for having me. Thank you for having we'll me. Have, I've enjoyed the conversation. Well, we'll have to, no, thank you. We'll have to have you on again. But also, I encourage people to go and check out your Instagram and your uh, Facebook, which is um, Z underscore lines. And yeah, you yeah. can see like just from, it looks like it's from scratch or someone's brought you like a, a little tiny bit of a car and you're building something out of it. So a lot of cars um, that we have built over the years have been from scratch, you know, and they have been from nothing. Wow. You know, it's, 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 it's nice when you get a project like that sometimes because everybody thinks, oh, it's such a daunting job going, you know, building a car, but it's, it's not a big job. It's just lots of little jobs that you put together in the right order. Gosh, that almost sounds like philosophy. Uh, very good. Oh, 
Brilliant. Well, um, that, that that wraps up today's show. Um, please do, uh, if you, wherever you listen to us on your pat- platform of choice for podcasts, please give us a five-star rating or a favorable review or just comment and tell us what you like to hear about or ask us any questions. Um, you can listen to us on YouTube or your podcast platform of choice, as I've said. We're on Twitter at StripTheDip, uh, and that's a handle that we tend to use consistently uh, across social media. So until next time, um, with great thanks to Martin Wilcox, I've been your co-host, F1 Blag, and we'll see you soon. Goodbye.